Passover service. It was basically a new exodus. Uh, when they came out of the land of Egypt, God gave them manna. Manna was a picture of the body of Christ. The body of Christ, Jesus is the bread that's come down from heaven. He explained that in, in, in quite a bit of detail in John chapter 6. And when he took that middle piece of bread that, that from the Afikoman, the second per, uh, piece of bread in the unity, that matzah, unleavened, Jesus, as Jesus was without sin and is without sin, bruised, as Jesus was bruised for iniquity, iniquities, pierced, as he's pierced for our transgressions, striped, when you look at that little piece of matzah, unfortunately because of COVID, we're not using the matzah we usually use, uh, but hopefully we'll be back to it. We still use unleavened bread. Uh, but uh, bruised, he was bruised for iniquities, by his stripes we're healed, through his, uh, he's pierced for our transgressions. What a wonderful picture of Christ. And he takes that piece out, and he says, this is my body, right? Just given for you. And sometimes we focus on the fact that it's without leaven, as he's without sin. The son of God. There was no sin in him, amen? And oftentimes we forget that God has foreordained in his program to allow this, I believe, personally look like it looks because that's what God went through for us because of his great love for us. And it's, it's, it's hard to fathom, but it's incredible. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's a historical event our very calendar, you know, 2021 A.D., right? After Christ's death is based upon his death, burial, and resurrection in the Western uh, world. You know, the, it's, it's mind-boggling what he went through. But I don't think sometimes we recognize the effect that this should have on our own lives. And we take communion, and sometimes when we take communion, it becomes pretty much almost like a ritual where we just do it because it's part of the service. But... We need to focus on and take, pay attention on the importance of what we're doing. And I think this message, I've been praying about it, and I'm hoping you'll understand, will grab you in such a way that you'll recognize and it'll motivate you every time you do communion to realize, wow, look what the Lord did for me. Look how much he loves me, but also look at how much he hates sin, so much that he went through what he did to, to deal with sin. Amen? And we need to recognize what he went through. We need to recognize the body of Christ, what he's done for us, and who he's died for, and the fact that since he died for the world, but those who come to him appropriate his grace through faith in him, that this is a very, very serious thing. And when we do communion, so every once in a while, I'll, I'll, we'll talk about communion uh, in, in a message. I thought, you know, I want to have a, a message about it, that, and, and what really strikes me about it is that would really grab our hearts. And I really think, uh, hopefully this message will shock you a little bit too into realizing, wow, I need to be serious about not just while I'm doing communion, but about what Jesus did for me every day. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Which sounds a lot like what he's going to say in 1 Corinthians 15 about the gospel that he delivered to them, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures for us. In which... He was betrayed, now this is interesting, I, was, I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. So the night before his crucifixion. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now they've been, the, they're Jews, you know, they've been practicing Passover for years and years, right? Hundreds of years, their families have, you know, and they have that little piece of bread. They have different pieces of bread, but he takes out that, I believe, the middle piece because this goes way, way back. The three, yes. How many of you have been to a Passover Seder with the bread? 
Okay, it looks like maybe almost half of you guys. Okay, we do them. We, we have them here several times through the years, and ho- hopefully we'll continue to have them off and on. You want to make it because it's just mind-boggling because Jews all over the place that don't know Jesus are taking out that middle piece of bread. They're breaking it. Then they're wrapping it in linen. Then they're burying it. Then they're rising it, not three days later because they got to get their Seder done that night, right? But then they're bringing it back from the dead, so to speak, and then they rejoice whoever finds it. Woo! And it's that unleavened, pierced, bruised, striped piece of unleavened bread. And he takes the unleavened bread and he says, this is my body. In other words, this is a picture of me. Not that, guess what? This has now been transformed into human flesh, as Roman Catholicism teaches. No, it was still bread. If you ate it, it wouldn't taste like human flesh because there was no transubstantiation going on. It, they mix, just like in the, biblical, in, in the Gospel of John over and over again, they're mixing up the symbol with what it signifies, you know? Must I come out of my mother's womb again? No, he's not talking, he's talking about a spiritual birth, you know? Give me this water so I don't have to come to this well over and over again. No, he's talking about spiritual water, you know? I'm the door. Does that mean he's a physical door that you hit with hinges? No, it's spiritual. So he, this bread is a picture of him. But we're supposed to think of him and what he did when we partake of it. And it says in verse 18, Paul, I'm sorry, not verse 18, <laughs> verse 25 And when he had t- given thanks, he broke it and said, verse 24, this is my body, which is for you. Do this remembrance of me. Now, verse 25, in the same way he took the cup, also after saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, he is the Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's also, his resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All these beautiful pictures in the Old Testament of Christ's death for our sins and being the first one resurrected as the ingathering of the Feast of Pentecost would come, a picture of our resurrection. Then the believers would come later and a picture of what would be future for them. But follow this, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time we partake of the cup, We are actually proclaiming Christ's death. We're thinking, wow, this is a proclamation that he died for me. Now, if someone died for you, if they went in front of a bullet and took it for you, you know, when your car is getting hijacked at the gas station or something, you'd be incredibly grateful for them. You know, that person died in my place. They didn't have to, you know. And then if you saw something that reminded you of them, your heart should swell with gratitude and love. How much more the fact that Jesus took all your sins because of a death that you deserved and died on the cross in your place should we have this incredible sense of gratitude when we partake of communion and think of his death for us. And I I love communion because it's not a morbid thing. It's a reminder of the most beautiful thing that's ever happened to you. It's like, wow, how amazing is our God. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. Remember in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, the scriptures are very clear. It says, without the shedding of blood, it says, you know, there's no forgiveness of sins. It says, that's, that's the Old Testament and the New Testament. But, first, but in Leviticus 17, 11, it says specifically, the life is in the blood. You have life right now, physical life. You drain out your blood, you're dead. Sometimes they thought blood was something bad, you know, and they drained it in Washington. They almost bled him to death, right? Thinking they were going to make him heal him, you know. That's bloodletting it was called. No, there's life is in the blood. We need our blood, you know. 
So it's interesting. It was through the shedding of his innocent blood, he died in our place because the wage of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So what does it mean to eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner? And they're guilty of the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So when we do communion, you should be taking stock. Where's my heart at with Jesus? Am I just focused? Am I in rebellion to the Lord and doing my own thing and, and just living a wicked life and I'm just going through some kind of ritual, pretending to be a Christian? Or do I really, am I thankful that he gave himself for me, that he died for me, that he rose again? And my heart's repentant. For the one who eats, verse 29, and drinks judge, I'm sorry. He must examine himself, verse 28, verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Okay, so we need to, in the context here, I mean, some commentators say it's talking about the body of Christ and how we treat one another. I think the context is pretty forceful here that he's talking about the body of the Lord and what he went through and the symbols that we're using in light of his death and burial and resurrection for our sins. I'm not saying that doesn't have another application because we are the body of Christ, but we need to judge his body, judge the body rightly in regard to what he did for us. Verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and in number sleep. Sleep is a biblical metaphor for death. Some of you have died. Some of the people that uh, were in that assembly had died because they were rebelling to the Lord, doing their own thing, and taking communion. Some were sick. Some had died. Verse 31. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. I love that verse. It's a verse I've... I, I love that verse. I treasure that verse. I love these kinds of verses because... They're so instructive, not only to me as a, a Christian to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but instructive as I instruct my children, now my grandchildren growing up. Judge yourself and you won't be judged. You know? Do what's right and you won't get a spanking. Amen? Not that I spank people in the fellowship, but, but the Lord spanks us. Amen? And we don't have to get spanked if we do what's right. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. He disciplines us, he spanks us to keep us on the straight and narrow so we don't have to be condemned with the world. So we leave the straight and narrow path to go toward the broad road that leads to destruction and damnation. He disciplines us so we'll respond to that discipline and put our eyes back on Jesus so we won't be condemned with the world. That, praise God, that's grace. All of his disciplines, all of his warnings, all of his promises are grace. They're all about him wanting to, us to partake of his grace. Amen. But we have to respond. Verse 33. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. If we were to look at the broader context of 1 Corinthians 11, but I want to go to various other scriptures so we don't have time to 
camp out here too long. The whole context shows that they were coming together and they were getting, a lot of them were refusing to share with others who were poor and in need that were in the assembly. You know? Uh, and and uh, many of them were drinking and getting drunk. And they hadn't yet, and, that's, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, just earlier, he warned them, be not deceived. And he said, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. And these guys were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. So they'd get together in assembly, they'd bring their food, because a lot of times it was, they'd be together for hours and hours. And they'd just bring some, you know, diluted wine, but then you drink enough of that, right? It's not diluted enough, you could get drunk. And Paul's very concerned about the assembly there. So he said, you know what? When you partake of the Lord's Supper, let's not make it a meal with you, Corinthians, because you really can't handle it. You guys eat your food at home. Amen? And then, and then just do communion here. So the Feast of Charities were off. And by the way, we've had Feast of Charities off and on for years. And if people started getting drunk at our Feast of Charities, we'd say, first we'd try to stop that. But if it got out of hand, it's like, you know what, we're just not going to do Feast of Charities. We'd rather not pe have people influenced by drunks in the church, you know? And it's interesting here because... They were not esteeming the body of Christ. If they were looking at what Jesus did for them, they would have a holy love for him. And they'd have a holy agony against sin. When you see what Jesus went through for you, you should have a greater love for him. He who is forgiven much, loves much, right? But when you look what he had to go through for you, it should cause you to hate your sin. Amen? It's easy to hate sin in other people. But God calls us first and foremost to hate our sin in ourselves. Amen? And it's easy to overlook our own sin and magnify the sins of others. We, brothers and sisters, need this day to focus on what he went through and what his body went through in the shedding of his blood to get a better appreciation of the sinfulness of sin. Now, go to Judges chapter 19. Now, Judges is an incredibly fascinating book. We were there recently with Samson, and we saw that Samson was a picture of Christ, a type of Christ. If you missed that message, you really missed some incredible scriptures that really show the beauty of the Lord and how Samson is an unlikely type or picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in his sin, but in the miraculous feats that God did through him and in his death. So I encourage you to check that out if you hadn't checked that out. A lot of people respond afterwards in a very encouraged way by that, because Samson's not a guy you think, you think is a type of picture of Christ. But he is one of the most radical pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. But that was in Judges, but Judges chapter 19. Now, in Judges chapter 19, we are at a time when there's this relativism rules the day, kind of like the world is today. Verse 1, now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite standing in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. So there's no king in Israel at the time. And when there's no king, you do tend to do what's right in your own eyes. That's how it was in those days. God should have been their king. Amen. Amen. Later, they'll receive King Saul, then King David, and a series of kings that will ultimately point King David and will point to Jesus. But there's no king. And four times before you get to this part of Judges chapter 19, four different times, it says they did what was right in their own eyes. Relativism. 
No absolutes. And that's when you talk to people, when you witness and share the gospel with people today, that's what they've been taught in the, in the universities, in the schools, you know. Oh, well, there's, you know, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Four times, it's four, four different times says they did what's right in their own eyes. That's happening today. And you know what? When somebody tells you there's no absolutes, then you ask them, are they absolutely sure? You know? Because it's ridiculous, you know? There's absolutes in the physical world and with physics. There's, you jump off a building and say there's no such thing as gravity, you'll find out there's an absolute law of gravity. And you have a terrible consequence to your folly. There are also absolutes in regard to God's moral law. And every human being has been given a conscience whereby to one degree or another, they recognize certain things are evil. There are certain things that if you did, if you just went up and killed somebody in front of everybody, brutalized an old woman, kicked her to death, spit on her, everybody there would be outraged for the most part unless they had absolutely no conscience at all. And we speak of people having <clears throat> no consciences at all. We speak of psychopaths, right? That's what they're considered if they have no conscience. We recognize there is a, a, a God-given moral law, although a lot of people don't want to refer to it as God. It's just, oh, it's just part of our evolutionary process. But then they just, because there's no king, they don't have King Jesus over them, then they can disobey the dictates of conscience rather than admit that they are sinful in need of a savior because the law leads us to Christ. Even the moral law helps lead us to Christ, but the law in the Old Testament articulates more detail what that moral law is. Now, it's interesting. Uh, when you look at this passage, and we're going to read through some of chapter, or probably all of chapter 19, he takes a concubine to himself. This concubine is, in other words, it's a woman that he's living with. It's not his wife. And he's a Levite. He's supposed to be spiritual. Shows you how messed up they were at that time. And this is the, it starts off pretty powerfully giving, getting our attention. Wow, you know, they're doing what's right in their own eyes. The Levite takes a concubine. Those words should go together. Uh, at this time, when you read through the Old Testament, this wasn't God's heart. Uh, but he says he winked at certain things, but now he calls everywhere one to come to repentance. And you're going to see this. But he shows when they would multiply wives themselves. It says a king multiplies wives to himself. himself he, he's going to turn his heart over from God to false gods. He warns that about that in the law. Then they start doing that. Look what happened to King Solomon, right? King David. It actually affected his sexuality because he felt open to other women, I believe, because of having more than one wife. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, you're going to be an elder, you have to be the husband of one wife. That's God's heart. But here, this guy takes a concubine. Verse 2, but his concubine played the harlot against him. Now, it's like you want to feel sorry for him, but guess what? He shouldn't be having a concubine. And now she's not being true to him. He's got his living girlfriend, right? Not really his wife. And now he's, she plays a harlot against him. And what's incredible in these days, still, people say, oh, I want to live together with someone first. You know, don't you try out a car before you buy it? Well, did you know by people living together, it's, the statistics show it's just a big disparity between those who stay together and don't versus those who get married? Because you're not showing a commitment. But his concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there for a period of four months. So she went home to live with daddy. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. 
I don't know. Is that the recipe to get your gal back? Get bring a servant a pair of donkeys. So she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. He's probably glad. He's like, wow, he's a Levite. He's a religious guy. She can use that in her life, right? His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Now on the fourth day, they got up early in the morning. And he prepared to go. And the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterwards you may go. So both of them sat down and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Please be willing to spend the night and let your heart be merry. Then the man rose, arose to go, but his father-in-law urged him that he spent the night there again on the fifth day. So man, he retains him like five days, right? Uh, he arose to go early in the morning. And the girl's father said, please sustain yourself and wait until afternoon. Uh, so both of them ate. When the man arose to go along with the concubine and servant, his father-in-law, the girl's father said to him, behold, now the, the day has drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here and your heart will be, uh, may be merry. Then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey so that you may go home. But the man was not willing to spend the night, so he arose and departed and came to a place opposed uh, opposite Jebus, uh, that is Jerusalem, and there, uh, and there with him a pair of saddle donkeys, his concubine also was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, please come, and let us turn aside into the city uh, of the Jebusites and spend the night there. Spend the night in it. However, now this is going to take a weird, sad, tragic turn of events in a minute. However, this, his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gebeah. Now, Gebeah is uh, about four miles away from Jerusalem. And these are his own people. So he's going to feel like, hey, we want to stay with Israelites, you know. I mean, look what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know. Places the foreigners live, we want to be among our own people. But keep in mind, it wasn't just the foreigners. It was their own people that were doing what was right in their own eyes. So he seems to feel like they'll be safer there. He does feel that way. In Gibeah, verse 13, he said to his servants, come and let us approach one of these places and we will spend the night in Gibeah of Ramah. So they passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. So they're going to a province or a, a town that belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, there, how many tribes were there? Twelve. And the Lord parceled out, according to the tribes, a piece of land for each tribe, except for one tribe. Remember which that was? Who was it? The Levites, right? So he's a Levite. Okay, he doesn't have a Levitical, you know, uh, province of land. Uh, their inheritance was the Lord. And it's interesting. He wants to go and they're hanging out with the Benjamites. Verse 25. They turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. They entered and they sat down in the open square of the city and no one took them into his house to spend the night. Okay. Here's this Levite and nobody's taking them in. Why would nobody take them in? On one hand we could say, well, people weren't following the Lord. They were doing it right in their own eyes. They were self-centered. 
they weren't taking them in. In the Middle East, even to this day, there's such a generous heart in many areas of hospitality, of bringing people in. And even in, in biblical times, there's still people that hold, would hold that view, uh, even more so in biblical times in many ways. But here, no one's really giving them a place to spend the night. Verse 16, Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim. And he was staying in, the, in Gibeah. But the men of the, place of, uh, of the place were Benjamites. Then verse 17, And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from uh, Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. For I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem in Judah. But I am now going to my house, and, and no man will take me into his house. Yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with your servants. There is no lack of anything. The old man said, Peace to you. Only let me take care of all your needs. However, uh, do not spend the night in the open square. Uh, that wasn't probably a good thing. Verse 21. So he took him into his house and gave the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Verse 22. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, uh-oh, surrounded the house, pounding the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house, of uh, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may have relations with him. Uh-oh. Gross. Okay. Sick and sad. What's going on here? By the way, does this sound familiar at all? What does it remind you of? Out of the mouth of babes, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know? I wasn't pointing at you, Rich, but the guy in back of you, the, little, the kid in back of you. He's right squarely in back of you, bro, so. <laughs> I look at Rich, out of the mouth of babes, but, you know, I know it came from you. That voice was too high. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, similar story, because people are similarly wicked, okay? They see this new guy coming to town, and... He's not part of their town, and they can violate him, they think, and rape him and have homosexual acts with him. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field. I'm sorry. <laughs> we read that already. But, it's, but if you continue to verse 23, it says, Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not commit this act of folly. So at least, you know, this older man who's showing some generosity at this point recognizes there's some right and wrong, right? It's rape is wrong. Most cultures understand that. Most cultures know that. Uh, man rape is wrong too. <laughs> Do not commit this act of folly. Verse 24, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Wow. What just happened there, guys? Now, sometimes people read stuff like this and they say, how could this, how could God do this? God didn't do this. This is, people have free will, okay? People make choices. There's warts. That, that's what I love about the Bible. It puts the warts in the word. It, it shows the folly of humanity, our sinfulness. And even though this guy recognized that rape was wrong, he's going to allow his virgin daughter and the concubine to be raped so this man that's visiting him as though his life is more important than the concubine or his virgin daughter than theirs. Now, keep in mind, 
in those days, when you showed hospitality, there were different rules of hospitality. And one of them was that if you brought someone into your home, you had to protect them with your very life. Even if you brought your enemy into your home, some of the, uh, the customs were for three days, three nights. You had to protect them and make sure that no harm came upon them at all. Otherwise, it was considered this heinous crime against, you know, the stranger in humanity. But two wrongs don't make a right, amen? So he panics, and he didn't value uh, the life of his concubine or, or the, the man's concubine or his virgin daughter as much as he valued the other man's life because guess what? The concubine also came into his house, amen? And the virgin daughter is his daughter, you know? So this, is a, this shows you when you do what's right in your own eyes, you pick and choose your morality, which is what the world does, you create heinous crimes against the Lord, amen? That's what happens. That's one of the lessons I believe is here is when you pick and choose your own morality and there could be a self-righteousness. Well, look, I'm protecting this guy. I'm keeping this custom. Whew. I mean, I, what did he, you know, they're after a man. What did he say? Take me. Uh, that'd be wrong too, right? But in that context, he probably should have, I believe he should have, he would have died in it, but it would be much better, much more noble for him to fight them off until he died, Right? than what he did. So this was not right. And it wasn't right when Lot offered his daughters as well. That was also wicked. Do you understand? So biblically, no one should try to defend what they did other than say, hey, this was the custom and this is how they thought to a degree. But the custom is not based on God's word. Hospitality, yes. Hospitality to the point of causing someone else to suffer so they don't commit a sin over here and not stand up for righteousness. No, that's not the word of God. These guys are taking, uh, are making a desperate move here. Here's my virgin daughter, verse 24, and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish, but do not commit such an act of folly against this man. And by the way, sisters, praise the Lord for Jesus Christ because he has changed the view that people, the way that people look at women, you know, the Darwinistic view of women is that they're just purposeless, meaningless, valueless people. Just like men. Just like babies. That's why so many Darwinists and atheists can just wipe out babies in the womb because nothing really has any value. There's no transcendence. There's no God who created everything that, that's created us in his image. Therefore, there's no dignity among humanity. It's all just, we're just all part of some big cosmic burp, you know, we just came into existence by accident. Therefore, you do whatever is right in your own eyes and there's no morality. There's no right. Ultimately, there's not because you cannot argue for a transcendent objective morality as an atheist. You can't because it's nothing to base it on. Why well, think? Yeah, you think. Your thinking doesn't, ma your thinking doesn't matter. You, so what's interesting here is he has, there's some spiritual background with the Benjamites, obviously. God delivered them from Egypt as a people uh, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, comes their descendancy. They had received the moral law of God and the written law of God and the ceremonial law and so forth and civil law. But he is picking his own morality. Don't pick your own morality, man. Because what makes you God? Then you become your own God. You have to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Now, verse 25, but the men would not listen to him. So the men, well, why would they? 
They're doing their, what's right in their own eyes. And he's not saying, thus saith the Lord. So the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until morning. Wow. And let her go at the approach of dawn. That means there was probably several men there. Incredibly wicked. Yeah, the Bible, man, it's like, it can be really graphic. Why is it being so graphic? Because it deals with reality. Amen? It's dealing with history. It's dealing with reality. Now, all the way until the approach of dawn, they raped this woman. Verse 26. And, the day began, and as the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. How sad. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, then behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold, like she's just trying to get to safety. He said to her, get up and let us go. But there was no answer. Then he placed, on her, he placed her on the donkey, and the man rose and went to his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife. This is pretty brutal. When he entered his home, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her in 12 pieces, limb to limb. What in the world is he doing? Look, he sent her what? Throughout the territory of Israel. Now, the Levites are there because there's 12 tribes and while they don't own a parcel of land, they do work the tabernacle, right? And, and they're involved in the tabernacle service. So he sends a part of her body you know, it's like UPS, you know, boom, just 12 deliveries, 12 parts of this woman's body uh, to all the tribes of Israel. All who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak up. Check out what's going on there, verse 30. All who saw it said, Nothing like this ever happened or has been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. He did this to shock them into an awareness of their moral relativity and how there should be, some, there should be moral outrage over sin and wickedness because they had no king and they're doing what was right in their own eyes. And he was saying, hey, there's repercussions to our decisions. This man right here, do you think he would have taken a concubine? This Levite? To me, it shows that there's some act of repentance here because he wouldn't have taken a concubine in the first place, I believe. I doubt he would have taken this woman as a concubine and fallen into such folly, which led to this, by the way, if he had known the end of sin. And brothers and sisters, I encourage you, consider the end of your decisions. When you rebel against the Lord and you break a godly relationship or you enter into an ungodly relationship and you purposely do that contrary to the word of the Lord, it's never the word of the Lord to enter into an evil relationship, there's going to be serious repercussions. And you can make the decision not to enter them and save yourself a lot of heartache. Save another person, perhaps, from being killed. So it has consequences. That's why God hates sin. The Bible says sin is 
is against God's moral law. So in Romans chapter 13 and 14, you read about abstaining from sin after he's spent 11 chapters talking all about the Lord's grace. And he talks about how, uh, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. He goes, you know, he basically says, when you keep God's moral law, you're doing good to your neighbor. The Bible says in Romans and Galatians and elsewhere that love is a fulfillment of the law. Amen. So when you love people, you obey God's law. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. We're now under the law of Christ. Two different times in the New Testament says we're under the law of Christ. And guess what? The Bible says, uh, you know, when you obey God's law, you work no ill toward your neighbor. I love that. That's in Romans, back to Romans uh, chapter 14 there. It's, it's, it's a beautiful passage because it talks about you work no ill. You're not hurting the other person. So when you break God's moral law, you hurt people. Oh, well, I do some bad things, but, and I break God's moral law, but I just hurt myself, not other people. And hurting yourself, you're hurting other people too. It's not that simple. Because when you don't do what you ought to do, that's a, when you do what you ought not to do, it's a sin of commission. But there's sins of omission when you don't do what you ought to do. And when you're doing what you ought not do, you're not doing what you ought to do. And one of the things we ought to do is love our neighbors as ourselves and be a blessing to others. And when you're busy sinning and rebelling against the Lord, you think you're just hurting yourself. You're not reaching out and helping others and blessing them because you're hurting yourself and you're really hurting them too because you're not walking in righteousness. Oh, I just, you know, when I get drunk, you know, I'm all alone. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not even breaking. I'm not running red lights. I'm not bashing into people. Yeah, you could be spending that time praying for people, reading God's word encouraging people, loving one another. So don't fool yourselves, man. Sin is ugly. Sin is evil. So this guy, I mean, he's had it. He realized this. Keep in mind, he didn't go into the foreign land because he didn't want things to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Not that he thought about Sodom and Gomorrah, but he didn't want it to be something really evil to happen. He comes among the Benjamites in his own, among his own people, right? You know, and he's not a Benjamite, but I'm saying Benjamites, his own people, meaning Israel. They're one of the, tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Amen? So he's going among his own people. And he's a Levite. But it's interesting. He sees his own people doing this. So he's outraged. And he did, what does he do? He cuts the body in 12 pieces and sends it to each of the tribes. And guess what? They're outraged. Something's got to be done. They're saying, we've got to consider this. We have to speak up. Well, that's very, very important to do. Because now... God brought them in the land in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 19 through 12. He says, when, I, when thou art come to the land which the Lord thy God has given thee, thou shalt not learn to practice the wicked acts that the nations practice, the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among thee as a wizard or a sorcerer or a medium or a witch. And he gives, goes through his whole list. He says, because of these things, I dispossessed them from the land. He spit them out of the land. He vomited them from the land. But he says, if you do the same thing that they did, I'm going to spit you out of the land. Now, guess what? They're doing the same kinds of things now for which God dispossessed the nations and the peoples, all the different Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Berezites, and on and on. All the ites that he got rid of, many of them were still in the land, influencing people to a degree. Now they're doing the same thing. And, God's, and if God had wrath upon the wicked and dispossessed them, he says, I'm going to do it to you too. And he's basically telling them, wake up. Judge yourself before you're judged. Now, we have a lot of people doing what's right in their own eyes today. 
and they label things to make them acceptable. They play the word games. Adultery is not sin. It's just an affair. I'm a ladies' man, you know? An affair? Sounds so sweet, an affair. Like going to the fair. No, man, read Proverbs chapter 4 through 7. It says you're like a, 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 a bull being led down to the slaughter and you're you'll end up in the depths of Sheol or hell. Wow. It's not an affair. It's adultery or drunkenness. I'm not a drunk. I'm a partier. <clears throat> and you're drunk. And that's your lifestyle, man. You're a drunkard. You know? Oh, it's just an addiction. No, it's sin. Yeah, you become enslaved to sin. You can, so there's addiction involved. But guess what? You are choosing to be involved in sin when you get into drugs and, and, and drunkenness and so forth. Uh, and, there, and people are proud of these things now. Now you have parents that are switching the gender of their kids. Well, guy wanted a little girl. Well, he seems a little effeminate in some ways. Maybe he's a girl in a boy's body. I'll turn him into a girl. Or I'll turn my little girl into a boy. You know? And right now, I mean, it's happened all over the place. It's become vogue. It, really, all over the place. It's being championed by academia in some of the school systems and the schools and, and just popular society. And, and you can't even critique it and say it's wrong in some areas or you'll get kicked off of Twitter or what have you. And it's just the spirit of this age. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. What feels good, do it. Do what thou wilt. Satanism shall be the whole of the law. It's satanic, ultimately. When you take the life of a little, little person, you decide this is what I'm going to make you. I'm going to change what God made you, even though the science is totally against it, by the way. Scientifically, you're either male or female. What about Aphrodites? Or what about those, you know, okay, that's a different argument. Male and female sex organ, that's incredibly rare. But when you're biologically clearly one sex or the other, you don't go and switch that person's sexuality as a parent. That breaks my heart. You know how many people, how many transgender people end up, people that get actually mutilated and their sex change, the suicide rate among them is among the highest in the world. Heartbreaking. Because now you're growing up in a body that you weren't created to grow up in and there's all kinds of confusion that that brings. Even though you've been brainwashed by your parents, well, really you're this, really you're this, really you're this. It's just heartbreaking. So we have all kinds of things. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 6, it mentions those who want to hear the King of God. I just talked about adultery, but it mentions homosexuals and it mentions, uh, and that now that's, you know, the gay pride parades, you know. Now it used to be something sort of shameful, sinful in the closet. Then, you know, in the 80s, boom, it came out and it became like something to be celebrated. Gay pride parades. And then on that same list of those who want to hear the King of God, it's heartbreaking, is Malakoi, which Malakoi is the, Greek word for those, uh, and it's, been, it's used in uh, extra-biblical literature. So you see exactly what he's talking about that there. And it's men who act effeminate and want to be like women, want a, to be of the other gender. And while the homosexual there is more the one who exerts his personality to engage in homosexual acts, the Malakoi is different in this sense. They're more of the men who want to be on the woman's side and be like a woman. And it talks about how they dress in women's clothes. We have extra-biblical literature which talks about the Malakoi. The Bible speaks to these issues. Isn't it amazing? And 
we want to act like everything's okay and it's not as bad as we think it is. And I mean, abortion, over 60 million killed just in our country, right? Do you realize how many, how big 60 million is that number? And it's far over 60 million, by the way, right now. That's a ton of people. That's a lot of people. 60 million plus killed babies, innocent in our nation. But, and it's murder. No, it's choice. Really? So if I kill you, I could tell the judge, well, it wasn't a murder that I just killed when I killed that person. It's just choice. The judge said, you don't have a choice. You don't have a right to kill another person. Yeah, I agree. I'd never do that by the grace of God. That's why we shouldn't kill babies in the womb. Well, it's my body. Well, the evidence shows that it's a distinct body with a distinct DNA. Well, it's in my body for so many months. If I was handcuffed to somebody for so many months and they were part of my body, connected to me, does that give me the right to kill them, an innocent person? It's a little kid, three-year-old kid is handcuffed to me and I can't get out of it because we've both been kidnapped by some wicked terrorist. But I can get out if I kill this little baby next to me. Boom, I shoot him in the head. Okay, now I can get him out without screaming. I can pull his hand out of the cuff and the, the guy outside won't, in the next room over won't hear him screaming and I'm safe. No, that's wicked. That's murder. All the arguments fail. Now, by changing the words doesn't change the reality of how dark sin really is. But now people are proud. People are shouting their abortions. You hear that? Shout your abortion. They're proud of it. And really, deep down, they know it's evil and wrong, many of them. So shouting it, and that shouting, it's not going to erase that feeling, but it makes them feel acceptable because they're tired of hearing that it's wrong. And so they shout all these sins from the rooftops now. And we live in a world that's much like it was in the book of Judges. People are doing what's right in their own eyes. We cannot kowtow to the world. In Wednesday night's message, one of the things we talked about was Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about the spirit, the prince of the power of the air, Satan. You know, he uses the children of disobedience as he guides this world. And the word world there is cosmos. We talked about that's where we get the word cosmetics. And the word cosmos means an arrangement of things, an orderly arrangement of things. So a woman might orderly arrange her face when she does her makeup in the morning or what have you. That's cosmos. And Satan is the god of this cosmos. He's ordered the evil world system. But the word, the course of this world, he guides the course of this world. The word course is another Greek word from which I mentioned we get the, the root of that word was meant weather vane or a wind vane like on a barn. And it goes to ever how the wind blows. It points in that direction. And that's how Satan guides the course of the world. He guides the fads, what's popular infuses power in celebrities and, and uh, academic, some academic leaders and politicians and guides the course of this evil world. We are not supposed to walk in lockstep with the world. We've been chosen out of the world, amen? The Bible says, be separate, saith the Lord. What fellowship does light have with darkness, the scriptures say? What fellowship do believers have with unbelievers, the scriptures say? What fellowship does Christ have with Belial, the scriptures say? He says, come out from among them, be separate, and I will live in you, and I'll be in you, and you'll be my, my sons and daughters, and I'll be your God, I'll be your Father. And then he goes on to say in chapter 7, that's in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, you know, after he says, what, what fellowship, you know, what communion does light have with darkness, and fellowship with the temple of God, have with the temple of demons? And he says, therefore, cleanse yourself of all sins of the flesh and the spirit, in the fear of the Lord. He says that. In the fear of the Lord, we're supposed to cleanse ourselves of 
sins of flesh and spirit, those things that would affect us. We're not supposed to be walking, guys. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you should not be walking according to what the world says is right and wrong. You should be in God's Word. You should be meditating on it day and night. Amen? That's how you apply these truths to your life. You say, I don't, you don't go with the culture. Jesus says, I've chosen you out of this world. The Bible says, love not the world system he's talking about. Love not the world and the things that are in the world. For all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, right? He talks about how the world's passing away and the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You've got to be in the will of God. Not going according to the way the world goes, but the opposite direction, the straight and narrow path that leads up, not down. Amen? That's why James says, you adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. If you're going to be a friend of the world, that's what he says. James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulteresses, he's talking about believers who've gone astray from the Lord. That friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever makes himself a friend of the world, he says, goes on to say, whoever makes himself a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Now he's warning believers I opened up uh, after Wednesday's study to some questions, uh, Bible questions or questions anybody had uh, at the end of the study. And uh, Brother Nico brought up, do you think James 4 is written to believers or unbelievers? And I mentioned believers. I, I believe it's clear James 4 is written to believers. It's written to believers that are backslidden, that have fallen away. And some say, oh, it can't be written to believers because believers would never fall like that, you know. Ooh. James 5, 19, 20, the last two verses of James says, Brethren, if any of you turn from the truth and one brings him back, he'll save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. And James is definitely addressing believers there because the very next verse, you know what he says? He says that the Spirit he's caused to live in you. And the NASB translates that with a capital S because their translation understands that he's speaking of the Holy Spirit there. And I do believe it's speaking of the Holy Spirit, although I believe the translation is still a little weak there because, or I should say weak, it's, say it's not, not perfectly accurate, but because the Holy Spirit that he's caused to live in us yearns with envy to have us or jealousy desires to have us. What's he saying? That God lives in us. He's a jealous God. But the verse right before that, you adulteresses, we're committing adultery on the Lord. We turn the other way, Amen. And it grieves his spirit when we love the world. It hurts, the Bible says, not to grieve the Holy Spirit, whereby we've been sealed in the day of redemption. So it grieves the Holy Spirit of God because he jealously yearns to have us, amen? We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, non-believers don't have the Holy Spirit. That's why I believe James chapter 4 is addressing believers that need to get right with God, but they're double-minded. He's talking about the double-minded and, and they need to repent because sometimes people think repentance is only something you tell non-believers, it's not true. Read Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. Eight times you see the word repentance used to the churches. The churches need to repent. First Peter talks about judgment. Begins at the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. So we need to make sure we're right as brothers and sisters in Christ that we're following Jesus sincerely. Now, we live in a world where we could have fear because we won't fit in and in a cowardly way back away from what the truth is. We don't want to do that. You, don't, you can't back down from the truth. You have to take a stand for holy truth. Amen? Your life is a vapor. You're not here long anyway. Make sure you're prepared to meet your God. Amen? Amen. Even if it means that our lives are shortened because we're persecuted because we stand up for righteousness. Even if it means that we get locked up for some time, it's better than offering your virgin daughter or someone's concubine 
because you want to spare your, 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 your new friend or yourself. We need to take a stand for what's right. But there was a huge problem here because Israel had fallen into apostasy as a nation. They were committing adultery spiritually. Over and over again they did that. The biggest sin of Israel as you go through the prophets is idolatry. Putting something or someone or something, typically another God, before the one true God. Now, I think it's important that we understand that there's something heavy going on here. I want to tell you, he, this, this Levite, what happened shook him into reality. Whoa. Look how wicked we've become as a people. And he had to be thinking of the irony that I made sure we didn't go into that foreign land because I didn't want something like this to happen. But it happens amongst my, our own people. And guess what? Right now in the church, the church is adopting the things of the world. Many professing Christians are okay with murdering people. They're okay with murdering the most innocent people. They're okay with mur murdering little babies. Years ago, I had a gal call me and said, hey, a friend of mine's going to this church. What do they believe? And so forth. And, and I said, I'm not sure. I'm not going to mention the church. I don't need to. But she said, you know, what do they believe there? And I thought they were probably, because I know that denomination now has become very liberal, so many of their churches are. And she wanted to know, and she kind of pressed me. So I said, you know what? Let me, let, me, let me find out. I don't know what they specifically believe. I called the pastor. And I asked him what he felt on certain issues. How about homosexuality? Oh, well, you know, I go, if, if there's a homosexual couple, and are they members of the church? He said, yeah. As long as they believe Jesus is Lord, they can be homosexuals, you know. I'm like, wow. I go, uh, what about abortion? Well, I'm not going to tell people not to commit an abortion because I don't want to make them feel bad if they decide to do it. You know, even though I don't feel it's right, but I'm not going to ever speak against it. That's all I need to hear, okay? I'm sorry. I'm against killing Jews here in Nazi Germany, but I'm not going to make the Nazis feel bad about killing Jews. Don't want to hurt their feelings. Come on, guys, think it through. That's just wicked. And that's the way, that was probably 30 years ago. 27, 28 years ago or so that happened. And that's endemic in what's called the body of Christ today. That's not the true body of Christ. The true body of Christ are those who truly fear and love the Lord, truly belong to Jesus, and truly follow him. Amen? Amen. So look, listen to the seven things that happened as a result of what happened when he chopped up this body. Number one, it took a horrible, bloody event to get the attention of God's people to get their attention. Number two. Okay, number two. The chopped up body forced them to see how evil and wicked their spiritual condition was and how evil they had become. Number three, it motivated them to take action. I don't have time to do it today and I only want this to be one part message, but we went in chapter, if we went into chapter 20, guess what they did? They mobilize an army, a huge army. And these, the tribes got together, they mobilized an army, and they went after the tribe of Benjamin. And they first asked the tribe of Benjamin, give up the guy who did this, the guys that did this. Come on, hand him over. And guess what? In a corporate solidarity, they refused to allow this guy to be punished for his crime. By the way, we see that going on today. 
in our justice system. Isn't that interesting? And guess what? So they mobilized this army, and they went and they attacked Benjamin, the, the, uh, the tribe of Benjamin. And guess what? It's kind of interesting when you go through chapter 20, you want to read it later. Uh, they, they, they didn't have victory at first. They began to really seek, they didn't pray at first. They began to really seek the Lord. Because the Lord allowed their cans to get kicked a bit. And guess what? When you take, when you know what's right and wrong, you take it in your own hands, you're going to get your rear end kicked. You're no match for the enemy. But when they began to seek the Lord, they still didn't have total victory. And that's the picture, I believe, for us, that guess what? As we seek the Lord, the wicked world's still here. But there is a time when we will have victory ultimately, amen? And then they ultimately receive victory, even though their numbers were far smaller of those that went to war with them than those of the Benjamites. So it motivated them to take action. Number four, it forced them to become one. Their tribes were disorientated and they were uh, divided and so forth. When they saw that body of that, that gal that had been cut into 12, and the quote-unquote innocent body of this, this gal compared to the wicked people that killed her, when they saw that, it, uh, it, it forced them to become one and they united to do something about what was done. Number five, it forced them to make a choice on either behalf of, and also anybody that was in Benjamin, on behalf of that broken, ripped up body and what had happened, or on the side of the homosexual murderers. They had to make a choice, okay? Number six, they formed a mighty army. They didn't only come together. Then they formed a mighty army, and they cleaned the clocks of the, tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. Number seven, last but not least, it was a memory of that ripped up body that brought an incredible effect of sobriety to them, affected them perhaps probably for the rest of their lives. I mean, now they go to war. They become soldiers, many of these folks, because of the situation. And they had great sobriety about good and evil, right and wrong. Now, what does this have to do with communion? everything everything because that body was torn and mailed to the different parts of uh, the nation of Israel to remind them of their sin and the wickedness and what they'd become you know Jesus' body was torn for us not just for the 12 tribes of Israel but for them too but for the entire world amen that we might come to our senses in regard to the brutality of what sin does. And we partake of the bread. Jesus said, this is my body. This is a picture of what you guys are going to do to me. Even though I'm unleavened, I'm sinless, I'm the innocent one. Far more innocent than the concubine, right? Because Jesus is perfect. I'm going to be pierced. I'm going to be bruised. I'm going to be torn, broken, striped before I'm broken and his body was broken for us he was ripped amen they ripped his beard out they ripped open his skin with nails and a javelin now I want you to look at those seven things I just mentioned again but I want to bring an application or bring it to Christ because it's a powerful picture it took a horrible bloody event to get their attention well guess what to get our attention the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was broken and his blood was shed. Amen. Everyone's here today because he got our attention. Amen. 
because he died for our sins and he rose again. So number one, just as her body was broken and it got their attention, his body was broken for us and he gets our attention. Number two, they chopped up the body and forced, were forced to see the evilness and the wickedness of their own spiritual condition, the sinfulness of their sin. Well, when we see what Jesus has done for us, it makes us confront the sinfulness of our sin. Amen? Because guess what? Even though they weren't specifically responsible for what the Benjamites did, they had recognized the whole spirit of the people of Israel was in this sleep of death of sin spiritually. And it rose them to realize that we've contributed to the problems that our children are facing and everything else. The Bible says all of sin and come short of the glory of God. When you read Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, Peter presses on the Jews their responsibility in crucifying the Lord and tell them with wicked hands you crucified the Lord of glory. It was part of God's plan though. God knew they would do that. But the most innocent God himself the most became the God man, the most innocent person that ever lived and could ever live was brutalized. And then in Acts chapter 2 after he says this is what you guys did with wicked hands it says it pierced them to the heart. They were pierced like Oh, we did this to Jesus, the, the Messiah. And they said, what must we do to be saved? How can we be saved then? What must we be saved? And each and every one of us, brothers and sisters, must come to the place where it's like, wow, look, this is what my sin's done. Because it's in Christ we don't only see the love of God, we see our own sinfulness. Because it's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes him should not perish but everlasting life right? But guess what? The scriptures say he bore all of our sins. He became sin for us and took our penalty. So number two, we should be pierced to the heart, recognizing the sinfulness of our own sin. Amen. And it wasn't you say, well, I never had an abortion. I'm not, didn't get involved in homosexuality. I wasn't a Malakoy. We didn't become an effeminate man. I didn't force my child to become another sex. You know, I'm not a drunkard, but guess what? If your sins were broadcasted and there was a little screen on your head that had in big caps of all your sins that you've been going through, they kept going across your head, you would either not show up or you would grow bangs, okay? Because everybody here has sinned, amen? And fallen short of the glory of God, including myself. Number three, it motivated them to take action. It motivated them to take action. Christ's death for our sins and pain for our sins should not only show us the depravity of who we are and our sins put him on the cross and what sin does, sin causes destruction, but he took the penalty upon himself so we wouldn't have to die. That should motivate us, amen, to take action. That should motivate you and me to take action. Now, I think it's interesting. You, may, you must make sure that you have a spiritual pulse, I mean, you hold your, you can feel your pulse, most of you can, and you can feel it and say, wow, I got a heartbeat, praise God. But do you have a spiritual heartbeat? Are you born again? When you're born again, there's evidences in your life that should show up that show that you're born again. Read 1 John, you know? But we should, if we're born again, we should have a hatred toward sin, a hatred toward evil. You know, in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, the Israelites, again, after being restored more than once, had been a, become apostate again. And there was like a death angel type being, you know, 
almost like a grim reaper with his, you know, huge, ready to take action against the wicked in Israel, bring God's wrath. But in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, Ezekiel's told that there's going to be a tav, one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, put in the foreheads of those who weep and moan over the sin in Israel. And they would be spared. So everybody who hated sin and was broken in their hearts because the God of Israel, Yahweh, was being sinned against and, and, and people disregarded him and were just hurting each other. And they grieved and because they loved Yahweh and they hated sin, there would be a top put on their forehead and they'd be spared, kind of like the death angel passing the Passover lamb. House, remember the house, houses with the, the blood in the form of a cross? Picture of Christ, the unblemished lamb was put on the houses in Egypt. And then the, pass, the, the death angel would pass over those homes and not kill the firstborn. Well, guess what? That Tav, by the way, Tav is a letter in the, in the Hebrew alphabet. And if you look up how that letter was written in ancient times by the Jews, it was written in the form, everybody remember this? It was written in the form of a cross. Amen. Out of the mouth of babes again, man. No, I'm just kidding. That was rich. A cross. <laughs> rich is awesome. So is too. And their lovely daughter is here with us. Uh, but the Tav... The cross, they were spared because the cross. So we should be, hate sin, but we should be grateful for what Jesus did in taking our sin for us, amen? Now, number four, I mentioned it forced them to become one. They were united, the, the, all the tribes just united. That wouldn't unite like that. It had to be united for some time. Guess what? The tribes wept as one, you know, they, they, they went as one. And guess what? In Revelation chapter seven, I love it, man when there's this brutal blasphemy against the Lord by the Antichrist and the saints are being put to death and sin runs amok because the man of lawlessness he's called, it's doing what thou wilt. And now they actually do have a king, the world, but he's an evil king, so it concentrates the evil even more so. Guess what happens? There's people from every nation, it says in Revelation chapter seven, every kingdom, every people, every tongue, that means every language, every dialect, people that will be saved and cleansed by the blood of the lamb, amen? because of what Jesus Christ did. And that's in Revelation chapter seven, two chapters after Revelation chapter five. In Revelation chapter five, Jesus receives the scroll from the Father. Who can open the scroll? John weeps because who can open the scroll? Because that scroll represents dominion and the kingdom coming to earth and so forth. And, and John's like weeping because no one's found worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And then one stands up, the one from the right hand of the Father. He looks like a lamb that's been slain. He sees the slain body. But he looks like a lamb that's been slain, but he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, not just the lamb of God. He's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. He takes a scroll. He begins to pop those seals, and the judgments begin to fall upon the earth. And people are redeemed because an angel, because of our preaching, the preaching of the church, but also an angel will preach the everlasting gospel. And people will be saved by the light of the gospel, the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ, the slain, buried, resurrected lamb of God. Incredible. John, in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus has him address this to the churches. We should wake up and say, well, what's coming? And he signs off. This I have testified in the churches, chapter 22. He wants us to know this book and know what's coming. But guess what? You have these different tribes, these different people, these different nations, different tongues. They become one in Christ. Amen? The psalmist said, I'm a companion with all those who fear you. And I love this fact, man, that there's, I, we have millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of brothers and sisters all around the world, those who fear and love the Lord. Amen? And it's the body of Christ, not the body that was of the concubine, but the body of Christ that was brutalized, buried, and rose again. That brings us together in him, amen? We have our communion 
right? And our common unity on the basis of Christ's death, his body being ripped, torn, broken, and his blood being shed. Number five, they were forced to make a choice either on behalf of the broken body or, as I mentioned, the homosexual murderers. Now, I mentioned all these, but I didn't show the application or how it relates to Christ on each one. How does this relate to Christ? Uh, well, we're forced to take a stand. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, he that's not with me is what? Against me. He that gathers not with me scatters abroad. You're either for Christ or you are antichrist, according to Jesus. You're either gathering into his kingdom or you're like the Benjamites. You're scattering people. Because if, you have, if you're not using your energy for the Lord and his glory, you're, not, you're having an adverse effect. It's like a cancer cell in a body that's doing the opposite of what the other cells are doing. And in humanity, those who reject Christ and are doing their own thing are quite destructive toward the kingdom of God and the purposes of Christ. So it forces us to make a choice. Number six that I mentioned, when they formed a mighty army and they cleaned the clocks of the Benjamites, guess what? According to the word of God, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at a second coming to Revelation chapter 19, it says he'll come with the armies of heaven, amen? We'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, amen? The people from every nation, kindred people and tongue that know Jesus, will be caught up to meet him in the air, amen? And we will come with him as a mighty army on those who reject his kingship. And the Antichrist who is blaspheming the king of kings and lord of lords will be thrown alive into the lake of fire along with the false prophet of Revelation 19, verses 19 through 21. Now, that army that we belong to here on this earth, we're ambassadors. We're not called to take over the earth for Christ. Contrary to what many dominionists, reconstructionists, Kingdom Now folks, NAR, New Apostolic Reformation up there in Reading, you know, and elsewhere, a lot of these false prophets who are saying, the seven mountain mandate, we're supposed to take the military, we're supposed to take education, we're supposed to take, you know, the, the news media, we're supposed to take everything for Christ and we're going to take it and we're going to take over for Jesus. And then we'll present the kingdom to him and say, look, Lord, we're ruling now. You can come and take your kingdom. And Jesus is like, oh, wow, you guys did it? I don't need to be the savior. I guess you're the savior now. No, that's not how it works out. Jesus comes and the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of Christ when he takes over. Amen? Amen. In fact, read the book of Revelation. It doesn't get better, Okay. The way we win now is by being a witness and even being martyrs. During the Revelation, when that time comes, it says those who are beheaded for the, by the beast, it says this is how they have victory over the beast. Revelation 15, after they're killed, it talks about those who have victory over the beast. They're, they died. How do they have victory? Christ had victory on the cross. Amen. Died for our sins. When, when we don't give up our testimony, amen, and we shine for Jesus in the end and we die as martyrs, there's a victory in that. Amen? Some believe you have to die as a martyr to be, you know, among those that rule with Christ. Uh, the Bible talks about anyone who suffers with Christ will reign with him. And all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. to be some kind of suffering as a believer that you're going to go through. Amen? So, by the way, right now, we don't take the law into our own hands. Okay? Romans 13, God's given us uh, civil leaders that, that rule and so forth, and when they become incredibly wicked, like Nazi Germany, he deals with them. But they're fallen human beings. But we, the weapons, Jesus said, remember, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this what? Not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, this is John 18, 36, if my kingdom was of this world, this world then my servants would fight. Okay? We don't wrestle against what? Flesh and blood, amen, but against principalities and powers. 
against the rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual weakness in high places. Amen? And the Bible says the weapons of our warfare, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, or 10, verse 4, are not what? They're not carnal. Amen. They're mighty through God, pulling down strongholds, casting down imagination, every high thing that exalts itself against knowledge of Christ, bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ. Okay? So we are in a spiritual war. When you take a physical sword and try to implement Christianity, it's no longer Christianity. Remember when Jesus was being arrested, what Peter did? Lopped off Malchus's ear. He's a better fisherman than he was a swordsman, okay? Got his ear, though. Jesus took that ear and stuck it back on his head. Thank God he did that, because otherwise there'd probably be four crosses up there on Calvary instead of three, because Peter would have been arrested too. Now if Malchus can't say, he chopped my ear off. Really? He did? It's there. No charges, you know? The more you try to press those charges, the more you show who Jesus is, you know? I love how God works. Now, it's interesting. Uh, number seven. I mentioned in number seven that the memory of that body brought a sense of sobriety and affected them for the rest of their lives. Well, brothers and sisters, when you look to Jesus, it should affect your life every day. So we take communion, we look at the cup, and we look at the bread, and we say, he was brutalized because of my sin. And therefore, I'm called to action to take a stand for what's right, but first and foremost, to recognize my own sinfulness, that I need to have a repentant heart. I need to esteem the body correctly so I'm not judged and recognize he died for me and I'm a sinner and I need what he, he did on the cross for me to be applied to my life. And when I look at the bread, I recognize his love for me, his great kindness in dying in my place. The Bible says we're, we're being crucified with Christ, amen? And we love him. We love him because he loved us, first loved us. Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his own blood. Exodus 16.31, and the house of Israel named, I love this, listen to what this says. The house of Israel named the bread manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. That manna that came down from heaven was a foretaste of glory divine. It was white, meaning it was a picture of his purity. And then it tastes like honey. I love that. It tastes like honey. It's called the bread of angels, by the way. Think about it. Why do you think it tastes like honey? They were going to a land of what? It was a little foretaste of what they were going to inherit. Amen. We have tasted the heavenly gift. It's really heavy when you think of the pictures and the types. That tastes like honey because it's letting them know, hey, you're going to land of milk and honey. Amen. When we partake of communion, it reminds us of where we're going. Amen. Of the sweetness of Jesus and we're going to be with him forever. Isn't that awesome? With all those things in mind, let's pass out the cup and the bread.